You're listening to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Well, hello, friends. Uh, welcome to another episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. And we just recorded a fantastic episode with our good friend, Dr. Jerome Lubba, who has a fascinating story, does fascinating work as a functional neurologist, and uh, dare I say, Enneagram innovator. Yeah. He weaves his world of functional neurology with Enneagram work together in some really cool and interesting ways. And we got to talk about quite a few of them, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. I think it was really it was really fascinating. I mean, anytime you can connect physical science and physical reality to something that is more esoteric and hard to grab onto, like the Enneagram yeah. sometimes, I think it just can become such a deep uh, a deep tool for transformation. Agreed. So definitely don't listen to this on two times speed. You're going <laughs> to need to slow it down. <laughs> Agreed. Um, yeah. <laughs> or yeah. So it, it's it's gonna it's some heavy content, but I really think um, y'all are going to really enjoy this. So yeah. yeah, it's it's called fathoms for a reason, people. So we yeah, do go yeah. deep, and this is a good example. But we have a really savvy, intelligent audience. I think you'll love it. So enjoy this conversation with Dr. Jerome. Hello again, friends, and welcome to another episode of Fathoms and Enneagram podcast. And today, Creek and I are here with our good friend, Dr. Jerome Lubba. Jerome, how are you, friend? Man, I'm doing so good. I got a nice cup of espresso, and I'm on mm. this podcast with good company. Life is good. What is your espresso of choice these days? I use, well, I've got an incredible coffee shop in East Atlanta Village called Joe's, and they carry Intelligentsia, so this is a black oh, yeah. cat Perfect. espresso at the moment. Very nice. Good stuff. Very nice. Jerome, we uh, wanted to have a conversation with you because you're doing some pretty unique things in the Enneagram space, which fits right into this theme that we have of season two, which really focuses on the unique contributions within the breadth of the Enneagram community. But before we get into the weeds of neuroscience and efficiency and whole brain identity and all these things. Uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the work that you do, you know, both in your, well, you wear a lot of hats. So maybe just give us a brief synopsis of the hats that you wear. Sure. And, uh, and then we'll go from there. Sounds good. I'll give you, I'll give you the bullet point and you guys, <laughs> okay. cherry pick, you cherry pick what you want to go, what you, where you want to go. I am a South African born Zaire immigrant, uh, which is called the DRC now. Came to the States in the early 90s as a refugee kid on asylum status, which doesn't really fit the mold of when you see my photo. Yeah. Um, but I'm an identical twin. Got to the States in the early 90s and going from Zaire to Knoxville, Tennessee seems like a reasonable transition. But I've been married 15 years. I have three kids, five, two and a half, and a four-week-old who's crushing it right now. It's pretty yeah. cool. Um, my wife is my best friend, and that took a lot of years to be able to get there and, and have that space that we have. And the Enneagram has been a huge part of that, which is cool. Um, but personally, in terms of career, my undergrad is in digital animation and film, and I used to do music full-time. 
So I don't fit the mold either from an aesthetic of a traditional doctor, but I only became a doctor because I couldn't find a good one. I've been a patient for over 22 years with complex migraine history, and because I couldn't figure out how to resolve that and no one else could, uh, the only reason I became a doctor was because I couldn't find a good one. And what I specialize in is known as functional neurology. My, my doctorate's in chiropractic, but my board certification and fellowships are in advanced neurological rehab or physical therapy, occupational therapy, but without drugs or surgery. So the easiest way I explain to folks what I do is I'm kind of like a personal trainer for the brain. It doesn't matter what state of health you're in. I specialize in complex unresolved cases. That's a majority of what I do. But if somebody's above ground and they, they want their brain to work better without drugs or surgery, I can give you practical ways to exercise your brain. The cool part is I've worked over the last 10 years to be able to substantiate that and also answer those questions using Enneagram specific language. Well, that seems like a lot. And then we haven't really touched on a lot of your Enneagram stuff. So you, Mm -mm. you do a lot of work in the Enneagram space. You are the author of the brain-based Enneagram, which is available on Amazon or on your website. And we'll get into all those details. So help me understand then why, uh, because you told us why you became a doctor. Now, why are you spending so much time in the Enneagram space and how does that fit into the work that you're doing? Yeah, the, big, the biggest reason was my, my experience with the Enneagram was similar to what happened to me as an immigrant kid, a person in a spiritual or faith-based background, and also a clinical background, um, which might not sound like they're connected, but conceptually, I kept running into roadblocks or challenges or kind of pushback in terms of questions that I was asking. And the answers didn't feel sufficient. So I decided mm. to start studying it and understanding it myself. Mm. And when I got introduced to the Enneagram, I was already in the process of getting a fellowship and board certification in uh, neurology and functional neurology. And when I learned about the Enneagram, I was already in the space clinically of understanding what a whole person is and how the whole person functions clinically and, and how to intervene in effective ways holistically, both holistic with an H and holistic with a WH kind Mm -hmm. of approach. But what ended up happening is I'd already had this huge bias towards kind of spirituality and theology and clinical spaces and neurology that when I got introduced to the Enneagram, I didn't have any bias. I didn't come from any particular tradition or lineage or background. So the very, very first time I was introduced was actually through an audio book. I didn't even see the picture of the Enneagram. And when I heard it, listening to that recording of going through each of the intelligence centers and the types and the interactions and kind of the natures and and dispositions. I was fortunately right in the middle of a course on neurochemistry. And I was like, wow, this sounds a lot like how different things show up based on what neurochemical is in the body. Mm. And then I didn't understand until I went and got more study that it was supposed to be biased according to a lot of the, a lot of the teaching was supposed to be biased towards a single type and I very, very much push back against that hyper delineation or kind of that distilled, reductive, stereotypical typecast kind of approach. Yeah. So when I learned about the Enneagram, I did it through the confirmation bias of a whole brain kind of complete human being. And when I started reading the books and even the very first time I saw the photo of, uh, or picture of the Enneagram, the symbology and the mandala of it, I was like, one, I think it's upside down. <laughs> and two... <laughs> I think you can actually overlay the brain directly on top of the Enneagram and explain it comprehensively. And I had this like weird matrix moment where I was like, I know Kung Fu. Um, (laughs) And the very first time that I saw it, I was like, wow, I think, 
you could actually explain all of this through brain function. And because I do functional neurology, you could actually connect exercises and practical application to each sensor, each type, each instinct, each subtype, so on and so forth. Everything that is language in the Enneagram is language for the brain, same language, different dialect. And that's been a 10-year process of taking that crazy idea and going, is that true? Like, could you actually validate that? And just trying to connect those dots. There's a lot in there of what you just said that we could uh, spend hours on. So so I'm curious though, talk to me about if uh, we aren't supposed to reduce the Enneagram to one kind of stereotype, which I, or typecast, as you said, which I totally agree with. Uh, what does the whole kind of brain and whole identity approach offer that's different from that? Can you give us a summary of what you're kind of arguing for instead of the stereotype approach? Yeah, I think metaphorically, the easiest way to think about it is we wouldn't go into any kind of arena or mindset to exercise or become physically healthy and see ourselves as a single muscle or even a single limb or even a single system. Yeah. We're a whole person saying, what does it look like to dynamically become healthy? And in order to do that, we have to first understand what makes us us. Yeah. What do we actually have available mm. to us? Because if I take somebody who comes into my clinic who's had a spinal cord injury and they can't use their legs, it would not be a helpful approach to try and do leg day with them, right? Mm. Unless they're coming in because they think I might be able to get their legs functional again and get them out of a wheelchair, which takes a very different mindset and a very different approach. Because the reason I say that is when we look at the Enneagram, most of the time when somebody encounters their type and they're told this is who you are, they'll dismiss the rest of it as if it isn't relevant. Or right. if they say, I want to engage in this particular thing, you know, I really resonate with this type or this intelligence center or this aspect. And then somebody, oftentimes an authority figure or someone close to them or someone that they're deep in relationship with says that isn't available to you. You can't access that. That's not for you. Then that person goes, well, I guess I can't use that. Right. And the reason that I think that that's really detrimental is I've had three people in their 70s this year get out of a wheelchair who were in a wheelchair for over four years. And they're in their 70s, right? So I think my goal with the whole identity and the whole brain approach is to stop starting the conversation with what we are or aren't and move into what's possible. And Mm -hmm. after we engage in that, let the body and the mind and the soul prove us wrong. But let's assume that it's available in the first place. So for instance... A really easy way to think about why we'd think about all nine is back to the gym and the exercise analogy is if I have spent a lifetime becoming really efficient and really strong and really capable in a high efficiency two space because I'm Mm -hmm. high in two, I don't necessarily need to exercise that two. I actually probably need to exercise restraint. So if somebody puts me into a place to, to, to become stronger in something that I'm already profoundly proficient in, that's going to have to take a completely type of ex- a different type of exercise to even really notice a, a change in it, right? Right. That's to change the way I use that particular muscle, not the fact that I use it. Yeah. But then if I've got a ton of other muscle groups and a ton of other parts of who I am as a person, especially psychologically, that I've really never engaged in, I've never broken a sweat, I've never lifted, or I'm hesitant to because it's uncomfortable and it's weird and it's hard and it hurts – If I don't learn that being uncomfortable and being a little bit sore and being a little bit out of sorts with that particular space is normal, then the fear of engaging in it stays high. So that's why I tell everybody it's it's just like getting into the gym and exercising. If you know what you're already strong in, then you can refine it. 
if you know what you're weak in, then you know how to engage it in a way that's healthy and helpful, but with, without being harmful, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think this this ties in actually really well with, um, Abram is not really able to be with us today, but he did send in a question and it reads, Jerome, I know you talk about how efficient we are within each number in order to navigate the idea that we are not a type. But this conglomeration of type perspectives would still represent our egoic self-concept, would it not? So how do you use the idea of your efficiency in all types for transformation instead of ego polishing? Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic question. I think the simplest answer is intention. The, the key with understanding the way the brain works is there's this misnomer that we only use 3 to 5% of our brain, which is actually not true. Mm-hmm. We're only consciously aware of three to five percent of what our brain is doing, okay. right? So we're talking about when you say ego, you can say shadow self, false self, right? But the biggest thing neurologically you can say is subconscious, mm-hmm. subconscious and unconscious. Realistically, unless you're really splitting hairs, are essentially the same thing. So we're talking about autopilot or yeah. intentional active engagement. So when you're looking at avoiding polishing your ego. The easiest way to know whether or not this is an ego conversation or whether or not it's active effort at improving the the holistic health of who you are as a person, which is physical, mental, emotional, relational, and if it's something you ascribe to, it's spiritual. Mm -hmm. The idea is to say, am I aware? Am I changing or intentionally choosing my response? And what is that doing in terms of assisting me in becoming a healthier person? Mm -hmm. If we're on autopilot, 95 to 97% of what happens to us as a human being every day of our lives is subconscious. That's the ego. The ego is the brain's way of saying, if I do the following, it increases my chances of safety, increases my chances of survival, increases my chances of having a pleasurable pursuit or decreasing and minimizing pain. Overall, I have a more life-giving experience if I engage in that type or that sensor or that approach. So keep doing it even when you're not trying so that we can get closer to that goal. As soon as I step, it's like you drive home, right? How many times have we driven home and we don't remember the intervening space from getting in the car to getting out of the car? We're just there, (laughs) right? right? right. Mm -hmm. If I'm taking that autopilot approach and I'm not even on cruise control, I'm just checked out. As soon as I come back into my body and as soon as I come back into the car and as soon as I'm aware, hey, was I paying attention to whether or not that was a red light or a green light? What (laughs) was that? As soon as I become aware that I was on autopilot and my intent comes back in, everything changes because the CEO just stepped into the room. So as soon as that intention comes in, the whole conversation shifts because bottom line is the ego is always autopilot, always. Mm. It's whether or not the ego is leading or you've got a higher part of your higher order of function, a higher version of who you are, a, a more true version of yourself that's leading the conversation we're just participating as a passenger. So in your in your work, in your own self-development, I know you, you suggest people go take the ready and then you do some sort of crazy math thing and then <laughs> <laughs> you come up with numbers. And um, you, you speak to like the, the, the number that you score lowest on is, yeah. is a place where you need to focus on. So do you work on that? that specific point on the Enneagram or do you look at how your, your dominant efficiency is uh, repressing your bottom number? If that even makes sense. I'm not quite sure how to word it. Yeah, no, I'm tracking with you. And the answer is 
Yes, to all of the above. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. Like most things. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the way that it works is it's, it's kind of like what I do with somebody in a clinical setting is I have to see where the greatest opportunity for immediate benefit is. Mm, okay. Sometimes the greatest opportunity is somebody's going 200 miles an hour in their top number or their yeah. top type or their predisposition, and it's running roughshod over the rest of their life and everybody around them, right? So the collateral mm, damage mm-hmm. is huge because they're so intense in that top right. number. And the intensity, we must understand a lot of the nuance of these words, that if somebody's a self-preservation nine, if they're going undeniably fast in that space, they may be the most withdrawn person on the planet. They may be the most disassociated, right? So I'm not talking about necessarily an actual speed. I'm saying what is the thing that they're most efficient in? Sometimes they're, they're, it's a law of diminishing returns, right? Yeah. If I'm too withdrawn... What does it look like to get that person to engage in their top number, but in a different stance or a different subtype or a different instinct, Mm -hmm. right? Different Mm -hmm. approaches. It's saying, what's the healthiest thing that I can do to give your system the biggest opportunity to build some margin, move you away from threshold, move you away from your triggers. There's different ways Mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. But to your question, Creek, sometimes the, the way to think through it is the top number, and you don't have to do the whole identity profile. You don't have to do all the math. I'm sure. a classic example of this. My <laughs> highest number is a two by a long shot. Second is six, third is three, and six and three are tied. Five is my lowest number by a mile, right? Like it's a lot. Um, and most people, when they hear my work, they're like, you must be a five. And I'm like, there's nothing that I'm less inclined to than specifically five spaces because I'm a relationship-driven person mm. and I can't have a conversation in the way that I speak with pure data. If I can't be in relationship with another person, it's weird for me. And people who are really good at five energy can do that in spades. And for me, I'm about three minutes into looking at a spreadsheet and I get really uncomfortable. It's not my Mm. thing. Mm -hmm. So I say that to say one of the ways to look at it without doing the whole profile is just when you take the ready, for instance, or any test that gives you uh, a comprehensive kind of score or point for each number. I like the ready because I think it's more reliable. Is if you look at the top numbers and you're saying, how would I engage that? It's probably resistance training, like saying, what would it look like for me to to rein it in a bit there? Because I'm probably already pretty efficient in that. What would it look like to be aware of it? And then also check in to go, is it hard? Is it necessary for me to drive so hard in that particular space or can I pull mm-hmm. back a bit? Can I be mm-hmm. a bit more efficient? Can I see how I'm budgeting my resources? Maybe overspending it. And the bottom number is, it's a, say, it's a case of looking at it and going, man, what would it look like for me to lift a little bit of weight in that space, just to break a sweat there a bit, to engage it in a way that goes, could I lift a five-space conversation? Could I try to do my own taxes instead of avoiding it? Because that's Mm -hmm. really weird. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a case of just saying restraint exercises in the top spaces and active weightlifting and weight-bearing in the bottom spaces is kind of conceptually a way to consider it. And it's a spectrum. So you've got kind of relative experiences in each space. Jerome, correct me if I'm wrong, but you take the ready results. And so if you printed them out, mm. yeah, they, they come out in portrait mode, right? And then you, you kind of twist them to landscape mode and then kind of walk through uh, the numeric results uh, of your ready scores for all the nine types, correct? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, and we it, just plot it all out. Plot it all out, which is it's where kinda- we get this whole brain kind of a, uh, approach, yeah. Yeah, and kind of a visual that would help everybody, I think, if you're not looking directly at it. And one, there's I did a whole bunch of free YouTube videos, and two of them are actually what is the whole identity profile and then how do you do it? So if mm-hmm. you just look up my name, Jerome Lib on YouTube, those videos that I kind of walk through that. 
the the thing that I was uh, I use as kind of a visual metaphor that sometimes helps is most of the time when we learn the Enneagram, we learn about the particular neighborhood that we live in. Sometimes it's a state, sometimes it's a country. If we're lucky, we yeah. see it in that perspective. But what I'm doing is taking all of the information for all nine types and saying globally, all nine types is a global experience. There are nine countries. Each continent, of which there are three, your intelligence centers, have three countries on them. Mm-hmm. So you can see the heart center is the intelligence center that that continent is the continent that is built on relationship and built on heart and built on all the things that we know that intelligence center is for. But the countries on that continent are two, three, and four. Now, when you drop into that country, you can have people that speak slightly different dialects, same language, but slightly different dialects. And those are your instincts. Based on how they interact with their neighbors, that creates your subtypes. So it's more looking at the entire Enneagram more like a population density map, kind of like a census Mm. and going, yeah, I know for sure that the majority of my population as a human being lives in the country who is motivated to nurture, to caretake, to help, to support. I know without a shadow of a doubt, two type type two resonates for me personally way more than any other number as a statistic, as a population, as an inclination, right? I'm predisposed to that. I wake up into, I go to sleep into. The question is, am I aware that I can travel to any country and am I aware that I can travel to any continent? And if I'm aware of that, especially if, for instance, I want to go from a two to a five space, which is not my predisposition, how am I packing my bags? How am I preparing for that? How long am I going to be there for? And what was my experience previously with five or my lack of experience previously with five that inclines me not to visit that space, right? Right. So thinking Mm -hmm. more as a travel guide than... Uh, I just, because the problem for me, man, honestly, and we see this, <laughs> I won't get into too much of a political conversation as a, an immigrant kid, but um, <laughs> the, we see this a lot even this year that there's so much tribalism and so much nationalism yeah. that what ends up happening is so many people will get into kind of this nationalism around their own number because they live in that neighborhood and they don't travel outside of that neighborhood. So it creates a massive confirmation bias. And I think we got to be careful of that when we yeah. look at it as a global perspective. Uh, we can have a bit more of an appreciation of everybody else, but also our own interior landscape. And in light of our current COVID state, uh, your metaphor of traveling sounds really appealing right now. I'm just going to (laughs) say. Let's go. I'm itching to go. Let's go. Yeah. Um, So I'm curious, Jerome, you know, given this is a unique approach and you're doing, and we haven't even necessarily talked about, which I want to get to, but turning the framework upside down and, you know, some other things that I'd like you to speak to, but I'm curious as to what kind of pushback you've received from the Enneagram community about your approach. It's a great question. I I always joke with folks. um, If I get to spend more than 30 seconds with you, there's probably not going to be a lot of pushback because we get a chance to hear kind of my approach being uh, open and available and and connected and, and desiring to support. Yeah. I always tell everybody, my work is not a substitution, it's a supplement. Yeah. It's designed to reinforce what you already have and what you already believe in. So because folks who understand that that's where my heart is at, anybody who I've had a conversation with for more than 30 seconds is no longer a stranger. So the only pushback that I've had at this point, which has been pretty minimal, are from people who just don't know me and don't know the work. They're, they're quintessentially and categorically strangers. Because uh, yeah, yeah. everybody's, everybody's going to have their kind of 
initial perspective of what that means, but it's very uninformed. So it's super easy for me because if anybody's pushed back, I know that that's somebody I haven't had a conversation with. As soon as I get a chance to chat with somebody and they see that the work that I'm doing can take whatever their primary dialect is and reinforce it and support it and also give them supplements to to help along their own process and that I don't have a dog in the fight with your particular tradition or approach, whether it's narrative, whether it's Enneagram Institute, whether it's, you know, SAT, it doesn't matter. It, it's, it's all saying if your understanding of the Enneagram is holistic and your understanding of the human being is holistic, is there a way that we could consider a discourse or a conversation on what it means to engage in more things, even if my conversation is how do I engage in other people based on my understanding of a different type? You know, one of the simplest things that I tell people when this idea is introduced is everybody's really, I think even more so nowadays when we're moving past the kind of the superficial aspect of the Enneagram that's happened in the last 10 years and into the really deep, meaningful work that most of the people who've been doing the Enneagram for an extended period of time are trying to connect us to, is everybody's generally pretty much on the consensus that we have the three intelligence centers available to us of head, heart, and gut. Everybody knows they've got their head, heart, and gut. They can even point to their head, their heart, and their gut. Is one of the easy things that you can do with the ready, for instance, is just combine the three scores in each triad or each intelligence center. And it'll give you a really quick snapshot of what you're predisposed to in terms of an order of events. Also neurologically, it holds true. So for instance, for me, my two, three, and four run roughshod over my heart. I mean, run roughshod over my head and my gut. So if I just look at those three numbers and I combine them, so I combine two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one, and I just get three points of information. Yeah. I know I'm more likely to feel first, think second, and act third. Yeah. And just knowing that piece of information that I'm less inclined to react and I'm less inclined to act, I'm less inclined to engage that space. What does it look like for me to be more decisive and for me to be more intentional and for me to understand why it's so darn hard for me to get into an eight and a nine space? That information alone of just what is my orientation to thinking, feeling, and acting or thinking, feeling, and reacting, man, that's super helpful. Well, I, I teased it, so let's go there. You made a statement that uh, some in the Enneagram community might consider to be Enneagram heresy, which is you <laughs> think the framework's upside down. Yeah. And so, and if you look on uh, your website and on your book uh, illustrations, which are stunning, by the way, what you've done is you've taken that gap, what we call kind of the existential gap or the existential hole between the four and the five, which is traditionally at the bottom of the framework. And you've you know, turned it, turned the dial of the framework so that that is at the top. Why? Yeah, it's um, it's two reasons. One, it's it's I think practical, and the other one is for the neuroscience behind it, the okay. neuroanatomy. Yeah, the practical piece, and I I don't mean to make light of obviously something that's so profound and so so incredible without any of the neuroscience. But the very first time that I saw the symbol of the enneagram, and it said head, heart, and gut, and gut was at the top, and head and heart were underneath it. My very first thought was why is that person upside down, hmm. right? Hmm. The gut, if I touch my head, I touch my forehead, and anybody I who does sho- yep. chakra work, anything that's Kabbalistic, anything that's mystic, anybody who does energy-based work, or anybody who's a human being who can touch their head, their heart, and their gut, when they go in order, <laughs> the head's at the top, heart's in the middle, gut's at the bottom. A human being is oriented with the head above the gut. 
So yeah. when I looked at the Enneagram, I was like, I get it. I don't disagree with the the language or the concepts or the application. I love it. I think it's undeniably brilliant. It's it's like looking at the drawings of something by Da Vinci and going, how in the hell did that guy figure that out at that time? Yeah. The yeah. Enneagram's the same for me. I see that. But the gut being above the head didn't make sense physically for me. Metaphorically, I mm-hmm. think you can make mm-hmm. tons of tons of comparisons. But the other side, especially to be able to explain that existential gap or kind of that space between the five and the four is when you flip the Enneagram and the five and the four at the top, and then you overlay the brain, the left hemisphere of the brain goes over the head center. The right hemisphere of the brain goes over the heart center. And then the subconscious elements like what's called your cerebellum and your brain stem and your limbic system and all the subconscious kind of structures. If anybody's not familiar with brains uh, or brain anatomy, just think of a piece of broccoli you've got the floret on the top and then you got the stalk underneath it. If you cut a line in the middle of the floret, you'd have a left hemisphere, a right hemisphere, and then that stalk holding it up. That's the same exact way a human yeah. brain is set up. There's a left, a right, and a brainstem. So okay. the brainstem is what controls your gut function. The right brain is traditionally what controls your heart function. The left brain is that intellectual, different than intuition, intellectual piece of, of that. So when I overlaid that, that gap between the five and the four is actually anatomically it's what's known as the corpus callosum it's the bridge it's the latin word for bridge okay so the space between the five and the four is just the intervening gap between the left and the right hemisphere that all intersects with the brain stem so it's uh, just trying to connect the dots anatomically especially you know because the the old science that was really really incorrect which i think is lending itself to updating some of the enneagram language is you are not a left or a right brain person like that what's mm-hmm. called a hemisphericity model is old science because if you're a left brain person, what happened to the other half of your brain? <laughs> right. And right. most people don't even know that 97% of what's happening to us is being run and navigated by the lower parts of the brain and the older parts of the brain anyways. Mm-hmm. So when everybody's saying this, I always say, well, how familiar are you with what your brainstem does? Because your brainstem's running 90 to 95% of the show even without your cortex, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's just trying to help people know that if you're using your brain, if you're above ground and you're breathing, then you're going to have to have all of those factors, left, right, and brainstem, which correlates with the three intelligence centers all together. But you can't do it with the gut at the top because then you've got the brain upside down. And even if you take the neuroscience out of it and you just use Enneagram language, if the gut's above the head and the heart, that's a human being that's upside down as well. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, no worries. So, Jerome, we had a listener shoot us a message the other day. She asked us a question about how the Enneagram interacts with executive function disorders, or EFDs. Is there any correlation between Enneagram type and EFD, and what are the tools that people can use to perhaps work on those EFDs? Yeah, it's a a great question, and it's it's definitely something that would be in the realm of potential research, right? There's, mm-hmm. Right now in the world of the Enneagram, there's not a ton of research validated kind of studies. And there's definitely nothing that's connected with clinical science of things. So the answer mm-hmm. will be anecdotal. And you can do what's called an evidence bridge in science or in, in neuroscience, which is you take two completely different pieces of information that have already been proven. And then you say, look, if these things were linked up, would they substantiate each other and that would eventually become a research study that could be validated. So everything I'll say right now is anecdotal. Uh, I believe it to be true, but I can't point you to a research study because it hasn't been done. But that being said, executive function disorders are basically saying the CEO of your brain, which is your frontal lobe, which is the, the, the top goal of every human being on the planet is to 
be able to develop their capacity for executive decision making. Mm-hmm. Whatever their relative capacity is, they want to be able to make a choice. Being a human is about making an active, intentional, connected decision, right? Like we were talking mm-hmm. about before. Are we on autopilot? Is our body doing it for us or are we in the driver's seat? So when we talk about the Enneagram in clinical spaces or with a diagnosis, I absolutely feel and have seen major connections with particular things. And one of the ones that's an easy connection to make, and it also shows you how the Enneagram is already giving us the resources and the avenues for kind of engaging, is if you look at a seven energy, seven energy is very classically kinetic, right? If you meet a seven, eight or an eight, seven, they're the most, especially if they're sexual instinct, they're some of the most kinetic people on the planet, right? It's that, it's that assertive stance. But seven energy in the human brain, where it's located in the left brain, in my opinion, is very heavily connected with, in a healthy child, that curious, excitable, adventurous, enthusiastic, just kinetic energy. Every kid has that to a degree, some different. If that energy doesn't get integrated fully and it doesn't get exercised in a way that it's restrained or intentional or uh, channeled, it can become ADHD or ADD. It can very heavily be connected with autism. Mm -hmm. But when you look at a difference between like an autism diagnosis that's ADHD or nonverbal versus somebody who has what used to be called Asperger's, it's now called high-functioning autism. When you see somebody who's got high-functioning autism, that's very, very heavily connected to five energy, like hyper-intellectual, but not always really emotionally intelligent, not emotionally connected. Doesn't mean that they're missing it. It just means that that's not their priority. Their priority is to be very, very connected to the data and the pursuit of the information and the research and and curating all of the 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 answers, right? Whereas a seven energy is curating all of the experiences. So it's that hyper excitable seven year old versus that very, very intentional engineering kind of part of the brain. Mm-hmm. So you see a lot of the 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 similarities and the synonyms of the way that a particular type will act, especially if you know the levels of health and those pathologies really heavily connect if you understand how those parts of the brain work. So I do think simply put that certain types are more predisposed because for instance, clinically, one of the things that I'm thinking through that I can't point anybody to, so forgive me right now that I don't have a way to do this other than just anecdotally through my history and my expertise, that if a five energy is dealing with depression, versus a four energy dealing with depression, those are in completely different parts of the brain. So a depression that's serotonin-based, massively different than a depression that is dopamine-based. So if we understand somebody's depression based on their type is going to be very different. Depression is not a blanket statement where if you have depression, everybody experiences it the same way. It's like one of my mentors always said, if you've seen one TBI, you've seen one TBI, right? (laughs) So an example of how that would be practical is the, the connecting lines. Because if you take seven energy that's unadulterated, vibrant, kind of kinetic, unbridled, and you ask it to lean into a five and say, hey, man, could you pause for just a second and ask one clarifying question? Mm -hmm. And if you also lean into that one and go in conjunction with that one clarifying question, what is one thing that you could practically do right now about that? Right. Mm-hmm. So, and that's a different conversation about how growth and stress pass are, are very, very misunderstood. I think from a brain based perspective, there is not, there is not one direction, they're bi directional. But mm-hmm. if you take a seven and you connect them to both a five and a one and say, what would a mature response in both five and one do to support that seven? That actually becomes a clinical intervention to help with that unbridled kinetic energy, whether you're seven or you're 70. And you can do that yeah. with every number. 
So, Jerome, you've talked a lot about the the three centers in the brain, but I think we got a lot of questions last season about instincts and all that stuff. So how do you see instincts showing up in the brain, in the body? How does that map onto uh, your version of the Enneagram? I think the instincts are probably one of the most important things for people to start looking at in their own life and also anybody who's teaching and, and engaging the Enneagram as a therapeutic or a coaching tool because the brainstem is where I think the instincts live, right? It's, it's so heavily connected to the subconscious primal part of how we function as a human being. And if we don't understand what's kind of driving the bus when we're on autopilot or flying the plane when we're on autopilot, it's, it, it stands to reason we're going to miss some stuff, right? But a really simple way of looking at it, the way that I explain it when I'm doing a profile on somebody is also because I think the language of sexual, social, and, and self-preservation can be very misunderstood. So mm-hmm. I change that to gas break and cruise or fight, flight, or freeze. So a sexual instinct is the same thing as saying somebody who's engaging, hitting the gas, and proactively moving towards something. And oftentimes uh, they can create friction and move against it. So you can take the Hornevian stances as well that mm-hmm. the sexual is move against, create friction, but also increase energy, gas pedal, fight. Okay. Mm-hmm. The social is your freeze response, move towards, preserve the space keep it exactly the way it is, just hit pause for a second. It's cruise control. It's like, how do we maintain this steady state environment? It's not necessarily that I want to increase energy or lose energy. I don't want to utilize my resources or conserve my resources. I just want to preserve preserve the, the present state, hit pause, just make sure everything's balanced. Mm. So that's a freeze response. Just pause it for a second, hold, right? Not engage, but hold. And then the flight or self-preservation or withdrawal response is to say, my way of surviving is not to move towards, it's not to move against, it's to move away, right? It's the same thing. You take the analogy of the Hornevian stances of assertive, dutiful, and then withdrawal, you can do the same thing. There, there are different flavors and different degrees of order. But realistically, when you're looking at instincts, at the end of the day, instincts will always be purely subconscious. They are not an active choice. You cannot make a subconscious decision conscientiously. You can't make that executive decision in the subconscious. You can foster an environment that as you become, it's like the rules of competency, right? Or Maslow's hierarchy. You can be unconsciously incompetent in something and then consciously incompetent in it. But you cannot have that be an autopilot response unless it's default in the way that your body works without your intervention or involvement, or it's become so familiar and it's become such a, a trained skill that it's just second nature for you. But when you're looking at instincts, you're specifically looking at your brain and your experience and your lifetime of experience is saying, if I engage in this particular way, my chances of survival go up. My chances of self-gratification go up. And self-gratification could be that you minimize pain or that you increase pleasure. It's a both and, which is a bigger conversation. Mm. But just simply put, when you're looking at instincts, I'll use myself as an example practically. I'm very, very high in social. I'm very, very low in self-preservation by comparison. My support is sexual, but my blind is self-preservation. My bottom, out of my bottom four numbers, three of them are withdrawal stances out of the bottom four. My bottom instinct is self-preservation. <laughs> if somebody tells me not to look at my bottom numbers or not to look at my bottom instinct, I will lose the greatest opportunity that I have to slow down, catch my breath, and practice self-care by withdrawing. Yeah. If I need to rest and rest is not my default and I don't know that I'm uninclined to that, 
then every single time I try to rest and I'm so unpracticed at it, it's going to feel weird until it doesn't. So helping know those instincts. And it's also funny because, you know, in the Enneagram world, instincts are always referred to as a stack, but you don't hear that with type and intelligence center. It's the exact same concept. You have a primary, a support, and a blind. The difference with the types is there are nine along that spectrum. And with the intelligence centers, there's still only three. Right, so it's it's the same thing. It's primary support and blind, or lead support and blind, and and you use them all together. I feel like we could talk for another few hours. Yeah. So we'll just have to call this part one. Okay. Yeah, man. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> we'll, good. We'll have to have you back. But before we let you go, Jerome, why don't you tell us where listeners can find you and the work that you do, and if you have any sort of teasers as to what you're working on right now that we can maybe look forward to. Sure. That'd be great. Yeah, the the easiest way um, for kind of unpacking some of the conversation around efficiencies and if you're high in a number, or what do you do if you're low in a number, like me being low in five and self press? If you just go to YouTube and look up Jerome Libba, L-U-B-B-E, there's a channel there that's got a fair amount of free videos. Also, my website that connects to everything, you can either do wholeidentity.com or you can go to Dr. Jerome, D-R-J-E-R-O-M-E, drjerome.com. The Dr. Jerome will connect you with my clinical site, the neurotheology work that I do that's at the intersection of, of neuroscience and spirituality and also whole identity. So that's more of a landing page. Yeah. But in terms of, and I'm terrible at self-promotion, so I appreciate you asking, but there's also a book on Amazon that you can get if yes. you want, or my website. And we'll be coming out with a lot of stuff next year because people have so enjoyed the artwork. Um, and that was done by Amy Strickland, um, who I'm meeting with in three minutes to go over new content. Because the next big thing that I'm working on, I'm going to be stepping back from writing another book next year because I've actually got 12 that are framed out that I'm trying to comprehensively over the course of the next 20 years kind of answer these questions in more substantial ways. Um, But the biggest thing that I'm doing for next year is I'm going to be working on a competence by design curriculum, meaning that it'll be set up kind of like a residency or kind of like a training program to specifically train people in how to engage with the Enneagram from a comprehensive, holistic, whole identity perspective. Mm. And it'll have uh, five ways to engage, either one that's 10 hours of engagement just as an on-ramp or 350 hours of engagement, kind of like a, a PhD level. Yeah. Um, so we're working on the curriculum to, to be able to unpack because it's going to take a lot of research and a lot of validation and a lot of connecting the dots. But right now, framing out the curriculum will establish the the footprint for probably the next 50 years of stuff that I'll be working on. Cause this is, this is definitely consuming a good bit of my waking and yeah. sleeping mm-hmm. hours. Cause yeah. it's, it, once you get it right. I mean, you guys know this, this is why you do it. But once you see it clinically that I'm working with somebody who does have depression or does have anxiety or does have panic attacks and you not only connect them with a the type, but you connect them with why what their brain is doing is totally understandable Mm-hmm. And totally appropriate, in fact, if they're trying to survive, it's just not sustainable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we we de-identify the diagnosis and we reconnect with identity and the things that are available to help them be healthy. You take that shame and that fear and that intimidation off of it and then you reconnect them with something that's really practical. It's just doing that for a larger audience than just one person in front of me is, is kind of, I think, what the, the life goal is going to be. You also have a podcast, don't you? I do Thrive Neurotheology is the podcast. We haven't done anything in the last year due to COVID, so I keep forgetting that it's there. <laughs> but, but it's Thrive, out there, yeah. And it's really Yeah, great. and it's you can just uh, look up Thrive Neurotheology. It's my older brother and I uh, connect, and we, we hit four pillars. We go Enneagram, 
neuroscience, spirituality, and practical application for each type. Uh, and they're about two hours long each. So, so good. Well, friend, thank you so much for joining Likewise. us. And I uh, already can't wait to have you back because I got a bunch of questions I didn't even get to. So <laughs> we'll do it again. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. And, and uh, also to Abram, who couldn't be with us and his exceptional smile. Um, <laughs> That's, oh, we miss, he does we miss have an exceptional smile. His exceptional. It is one of those ones where you're like, I don't know if I hear the twinkle, if it's just my imagination, but yeah, I definitely, yeah. every time I see him, I did ding. Oh, I know. <laughs> I hear it. I hear it. It's I know. We need yes, more of it. Yes. It's a beautiful thing. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Drew. Cool. It's good to see you guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. If you found this episode helpful in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. We are so honored to be on this journey with you, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Truthwork Media Studios.